Good morning again, everyone. We're so glad that you're with us, everybody in Smarter Campus. Hello, we love you guys. Everybody connecting with us online, we're glad that you've connected there. I love that clip. It's from an older movie, Office Space. But it's really picturing how people can have really bad attitudes at work. Any of you, don't, no, don't say any names. Don't look at anybody, but you know people at work, right, that just don't have a good attitude. They just don't have any initiative or anything. And and that ties in with what we're looking at this week. We are in a series of messages called Best Boss Ever. And last week we talked about, we introduced the idea that, that Jesus, because of his qualifications, because he's Lord, he's Messiah, he has every right to be our boss. And, and if we choose to follow Jesus, we're choosing to allow him to have authority over us, to speak into our lives, to direct us and give us instruction that we're going to be willing to submit to. So for these next several weeks, we're going to be looking at different parts of our life that Jesus should be the boss of if he's going to be our boss different segments of our lives. And today we're talking about the boss of our attitudes, okay? The boss of our attitude. You know, you can have a good attitude or you can have a, a bad attitude. We've even got a phrase we use and everybody knows what you, what you mean when you say it. You know, you know you've got that, uh, you're, don't cop that attitude with me or something like that. You're not saying that as a compliment. You're saying that as a negative thing because their attitude just stinks right now. And so, Jesus, because of his position as Lord and Messiah, has the right to have that authority over that domain, that attitude that we live with. There was a lady who went to a pet rescue. She was wanting to get a pet, and there was a parrot there that she saw was a beautiful parrot, and she started asking about the parrot, said, uh, you know, is the parrot in good health? They said, yes, and Uh, She finally said, well, can the parrot talk? And they said, yeah, but that's the problem. That's why the owner gave up the parrot. He cusses like a sailor. It's awful. And and, and the words that he says that aren't cussing are just rude. He's just rude all the time. And she got to looking around and thinking about it. She thought, well, I could rehabilitate this parrot. I just want to take that on as a challenge. I want to rescue this parrot. So she bought the parrot, took the parrot home and got the cage, got it all set up. And right away, the parrot just starts cussing and fussing. Every other word's just awful. It's rude to everybody that comes to the house. And she's embarrassed by what he says. And she starts this rehab program where she thought, well, if I just speak back to him softly and kindly, that'll start having an impact on him. So she tried that for a while. It didn't make any difference. He got just as rude, using just as bad a language. She said, well, I'm going to play soft, soothing music, and maybe that'll calm the parrot down. It'll be better. So she tried speaking soft to him, playing the soft music, and nothing happened. Then she just finally started losing her own temper. She started yelling back at the parrot, thought maybe that would help, really get stern and really lay down the law of the parrot, and it didn't help. Finally, she got so frustrated one day, she grabbed the parrot out of the cage and stuck him in the freezer of her her refrigerator there, the top freezer. And at first he was just cussing and and flopping around in there, making all kinds of noise, and then it got really, really quiet. She got to thinking, oh no, I hope I haven't killed the parrot. So she opens the door and holds out her arm and the parrot steps out calmly onto her arm. The parrot looks at her and says, I would like to apologize (laughs) for my previous behavior. I realize now that it was wrong and offensive. I can assure you that in the future that I will not repeat that kind of behavior anymore. And before she could ask what changed his mind, he looked at her and said, by the way, what did the chicken do? 
I think all of us from time to time need a little attitude adjustment, don't we? I hope we don't have to be put in a freezer, but, but we need to be reminded that our attitude is important, especially if we're going to identify as a Christ follower, right? If we're going to represent Jesus Christ uh, in the world today, then our attitude, our, our way of thinking and approaching life needs to be set apart from the world. Uh, it's mentioned many times in Scripture, Philippians 2.5, it says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, and some translations say attitude, as Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to talk about how, how Christ left e equality with God in heaven, and he humbled himself and, and, and came in the flesh and became an obedient servant, even obedient to the point of death. He says, I want you to have that same mindset, that same attitude toward life that Christ had. In Ephesians 4.23, it says of Christ followers that we are to be made new in the attitude of our minds. So when we come to follow Jesus, when we make that decision that he is the boss of us, then that means he's the boss of our attitudes. And our attitudes need to transition into being or transform into being the attitude of Christ, the attitude that he lived with, that he served with, that he interacted with people with, that's supposed to be our attitude as well. And so today I wanted to look at a, a section of scripture where we have some examples of areas where our attitudes need to be uh, under the rule and authority of Christ. Uh, the first area is uh, in Luke 9. Let's go there. Luke 9, beginning with verse 46, is that we need to have the attitude of humble service to our church family. Uh, let's pick up here Luke 9, verse 46 to 48. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. And then he adds this, for it is the one who is least among you, among you all, who is the greatest. Different attitude than even a lot of the people in the world would encourage us to have. I mean, a lot of People today have life coaches, and life coaches are always talking about how you got to be assertive. You got to take care, you know, you got to uh, be making sure that you're doing what you need to do to advance yourself, to, to get the advancements that you want in life. There are certain things you have to do to do that. And, and Jesus says, Well, in my kingdom, it's an upside down kind of kingdom. Now, I, I want to go back to that argument that started between them about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Why, why are they bringing that up right now? Well, they could see things accelerating in Jesus' ministry at this point. They've just witnessed Jesus doing some really big miracles, okay? And Jesus is now talking about this coming kingdom a lot. And they're thinking, of course, earthly terms, coming kingdom. In an earthly kingdom, people have positions, right, of rule or power or authority or prestige, uh, of influence and wealth. So they're thinking, kingdom, where are we going to fit in this kingdom? Where are we going to be in the kingdom order of things when this kingdom is ushered in? 
And like a lot of groups, these disciples have been watching something happen that probably stirred up some comparisons and some jealousies among them. Uh, Jairus' daughter had been raised from the dead, and Jesus had gone into the bedroom there where she was. She was sick and, and raised her from the dead. But only, only those that were closest to Jesus were invited into the room when he did that. Not all the disciples were invited in. Now, can you imagine not being one of the ones that Jesus said, oh, yeah, you come with me. I mean, they left everything to follow him too, right? They were committed like the others were to following Jesus. Why weren't they included in that? Other things that happened, like the transfiguration, had happened shortly before this. That's where, that's where Jesus appears and goes up on this mountain, and, and there Moses and Elijah appear with him. And, and it's a beautiful, uh, uh, a spiritual, amazing thing that, that took place there. And, and, but he only, had, he only had a couple of close disciples with him. James and John had been getting special treatment at least in the eyes of the other disciples they had. And they may be thinking, wait a minute, we better jockey for position here. They seem to be on the inside track to the most important positions in this new kingdom that Jesus is talking about. Isn't that a little bit the attitude that we are very much encouraged to, to even pursue in our culture today? Make sure you don't let somebody else get ahead of you. Make sure somebody else doesn't have what you have or more than you have. Make sure you're above the others. Make sure you're the one that's in line for the promotion, not somebody else at work, right? Make sure you're the popular one in the workplace or at school or wherever you are. Make sure you're the one that they would pick. Uh, one of my favorite commercials now, I, I don't remember even what the product is. That's how much you know, commercials have influence over me. But one of my favorite commercials is this little girl picking a basketball team, and there's these little kids there, and there's Charles Barkley, right, standing there with the other kids. And she's got to pick first who's going to be on her team. And she says, I'll take Barkley. And he says, yes, I haven't lost it. I've still got it, right? Yeah. Well, in the world's way of thinking, aren't we all thinking that way a little bit? We want to be the one that would be picked, the one that's the popular one, the one that people look up to, the one that would get the promotion when it comes up. That's not all bad, but the problem is, is it can cause us not to have the attitude or the mindset that Jesus wants us to live with. Uh, he's not talking about the idea of not being, trying to be the best you can be. That's, that's not what it's about. It, it's about this this mindset of service. So after he introduces this idea uh, to us in Scripture of this argument about which would be the greatest, Jesus says knew their thoughts. Of course, that's, that's the amazing thing about him. He knew what they were thinking and discussing and, and, and wanting to, to work out in their own lives. So he gave them this visual. He brought, he brought a child, had the child stand beside him. And, and he said this, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it's the one who's the least among you all who is the greatest. 
We get confused for that terminology sometimes. He's not talking about looking down on yourself and, and you know, being, being the self-loathing kind of person. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about humility. He's talking about a willingness to serve even the least in society. That's what he's talking about. You see, that's the attitude or the mind of Jesus. He humbled himself, it says in that Philippians 2 passage, and became an obedient servant. The word for servant means the, the lowest of all the servants. He became a servant obedient to death, even death on a cross. And who did he do, do that for? Not just the wealthy, not just the influential, not just the, the ones our culture would say, you know, are, are really major role players in, in the earthly kingdoms. That's not all. He didn't just come to serve those people. He came for everybody, even that little child that was standing next to him. Are you willing to serve little children? By the way, we can use some more volunteers in the children's ministries. I just thought I'd connect that. He said, I don't want to serve children. Here's the problem with serving children a lot of times. It's in the back. People don't see it while it's going on most of the time. You don't get much recognition for it, right? So Jesus says, whoever's willing to serve a child like this, it's like you're serving me. You're honoring me. And if you're honoring me, you're honoring the one who sent me, the Father. You see, humbling yourself enough to to care for, love, and, and minister to a child who can't do anything for you in return, that's the mind of Christ. That's the attitude of Christ. And it's not just the child. He just used that as the illustration of what he was talking about. It's whoever is in need that, that's not in a position to advance you or your goals in any way, but you're still willing to serve them. And that's not limited to just the children's ministry. So we need volunteers in all the other ministries too. So you could pick one. It's about being a servant. It's about not thinking that because you're a Christ follower, you're supposed to be served, but instead you're supposed to serve others. And sadly, in the European and the American church, we created this atmosphere where we thought we came to be served at the church. Instead of, we came to serve. We're part of a movement of servants. And that's our role in the kingdom of God. You see, in the kingdom of God, it's upside down. The people at the top are the people the world would say would be on the bottom. And God's kingdom, the people at the top are the ones who are serving others. Who see themselves as servants and welcome that role and embrace that role. They're not worried about recognition or prestige or influence other than the influence that a servant would have on the work of the kingdom. So there's this dispute that comes up and Jesus gives them this illustration. And you would think pretty good illustration. They should understand what Jesus is talking about. And these guys are disciples. They've seen Jesus do great miracles. They're learning who he is. You would think they would get this, right? They got the lesson, right? They understood what Jesus said. Don't you think they understood at that point what Jesus was telling them? You would think, wouldn't you? But just a few months later, nearing the very end of his ministry, they go into this upper room, and they have a seat around the table where they're going to share this meal together, and nobody has done what was supposed to be done. Nobody washed their feet. So what does Jesus do? He knows, again, they're worried about jockeying for position. 
Who's sitting where? Who's sitting next to Jesus? Who's the one? You know, who's he going to have in this position in his kingdom? Jesus gets up from the table, takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around his waist, takes a basin of water, and begins to wash their feet. And he says, if I, your teacher and your leader, have done this for you, you should do this for one another. In my kingdom, the greatest are the servants. The ones who are willing to humble themselves. That's the mindset. That's the attitude that Jesus is calling us to. So it starts with this humble service to your church family, to one another. But there's another part of it. It's also, and he goes on to teach us in Luke 9, a gracious acceptance of other believers. A gracious acceptance of other believers, even those who may not exactly be just like you or agree with you on everything. Let's look at these verses, verses 49 and 50. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. Sounds like a wonderful announcement, doesn't it? But what does he say next? We tried to stop him from doing something good in the name of Jesus. Why? Because he's not one of us. Right? He's not one of the hand-picked close ones to you. He doesn't have the position that we have. And so we didn't think he ought to be doing that. We didn't want him to be doing something that, that should be us doing it. And what does Jesus tell him? Do not stop him, said, Jesus said, for whoever's not against you is for you. He said, why would you stop him from driving out demons in my name? Don't you think a person who was demon-possessed would long for somebody to do that for them? Would, would be so appreciative that somebody cared enough to, to, to use whatever influence or power they had to, to get rid of that demon in their lives? That's been ruined. To be demon-possessed is an awful thing, and, and it destroys lives. And, and here's somebody doing something really good, and because he's not part of our group, Ah, we need to tell them to stop. Don't be doing that in the name of Jesus. You'd think this is pretty much common sense, but given enough time and opportunity, what can we do? We can mess it up. One of the greatest causes of division in the church today is, but they're not part of our group, right? They're not one of us. So we can't cooperate with them. We can't, work. we can't praise any good thing they're doing. We can't give compliments to them because they belong to a different group than us. We can't even work together on things that we do agree on. It's sad. It's one of the reasons the church is so divided up today. And Jesus is not talking about compromising clear teaching of Scripture. Casting out demons was in no way a violation of Scripture or doctrine in any way whatsoever. He's not saying you should support things that are not godly or not scriptural. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying there's some things we can all agree on, some good things that we can all say. Those are good and we ought to be doing those things. Why can't we work together on those things? Why can't we support each other in those things? Why can't we have some unity in those areas of service and representing Christ in the world? It's It's amazing. Sometimes, and I see it among pastors too, you know, I've been a pastor for a long time and I, I've dealt with this in my own heart, my own life, and I've dealt with it with other pastors. 
it's like there's competition between us. This pastor in this church and that pastor at that church and somebody brags on another pastor that's not you. And man, your ego can sure get in the way, can it? Uh, I find this humorous because it used to bother me. Now I just really enjoy the, the, the humor of it. They'll, somebody will come to me and say, I heard this pastor say this. I thought it was so good. It was so amazing. And I'm thinking, I've been saying that for 30 years, right? Why all of a sudden did you hear that guy say it this time, right? I like to think maybe I planted the seed that finally took root, right? You finally heard it, right? Yeah, probably not. But I like to think that, right? And then the thing about pastors is it's, it's numbers more than anything else. How big of a church are you the pastor of, right? What size church are you the pastor of? And, and, and then it can be competitive even on things that, that you think are good, like humble brags. You know what a humble brag is, right? Yeah, we don't have a lot of money, but, but we, uh, we serve food to the homeless every Thursday, right? That humble brag, you know, that's, that's all we can do really, but, but, you know, we do the best we can with that, right? See, the wanting to make sure they know you're doing good stuff. And, and Jesus is teaching here, that we don't need to think of it as competition. I love that we're part of a movement. Uh, the restoration movement is part of is a movement that this church is a part of, that we come from, is a movement to restore the church to the pattern of the New Testament. It's a great, great movement, historical movement in our country. It started here in the U.S. and spread all over the world. And, and in the restoration movement, the leaders at the front end of it developed some quotes or sayings that began to spread out. And one of the ones I like the most is this. We're not the only Christians, but we're Christians only. You got to think about that one for a minute. We're not the only Christians, but we're Christians only. We're not saying we're the only Christians in the world just because we're part of this movement or a congregation that's a part of this movement. We're not saying there are no other Christians out there unless they're part of this movement or this church, right? But we are just going to be Christians. That, that was the important part of what they were trying to say. We, we're going to be just Christians. And if we're just Christians, then should we ever be against or opposed to anything else being done in line with Christ or Christianity by anybody? No, we shouldn't oppose any of it. I know sometimes I feel like uh, sometimes people will bait me a little bit and say, well, what do you think about this church or that pastor, right? And what they're saying or what they're doing. And, and, and I know the question sometimes is just very sincere. They're just wanting to know, is it scriptural? Is it true? Is it a good thing? But sometimes it's like they want to get you to say something bad about them. Now, if it's something doctrinal, I'll talk about the doctrine, but I'm not going to attack another pastor and I'm not going to attack another church or another group. If they're trying to represent Christ, even if I disagree with them on some things, I'll talk about the doctrinal scriptural stuff, but I'm not. God hasn't called any of us to tear down anybody doing the work of Christ. Whether they're part of our group or not. Ever. There's no reason for it. It doesn't advance the kingdom in any way. It doesn't help us accomplish what God called the church and put the church here on the earth to do. So I'm not, I'm not going to attack another pastor or another church, I will teach 
what the scripture says about something, if they're teaching something you asked me about, and, and it seems to be off base scripturally, I'll show you in scripture what we believe the scripture says about that and point that out to you so you can see the difference and make that judgment about what you're going to believe or follow. Just because they're not one of us doesn't mean they can't do anything good. I'll give you an example. We, uh, we were on the ground floor of helping when the branch ministry got started here in this community. And I love that, that we've been connected to it all the way through. But other churches were part of that too, right? They're supporting that too. And, and some of them, it's not a competition. Some of them do more than we do as far as how much money they give or maybe how many volunteers they have for certain things. Should I be threatened by that? Should our church say we can't support the branch because some other churches support it that aren't in agreement with us doctrinally? No. We can all agree that people who need food should have the opportunity to get it. And, and, and they do some good things with teaching ESL classes. That's a good thing. We can all agree that's a good thing. Why can't we all agree to support that? We don't have to be in the same camp to have some common things that we believe in and love and support together. Why should we oppose another church on that issue when we can all agree that that is a scriptural thing and we can all support it together? So I love that we've got more than one church supporting that and thinking it's a good thing and helping out with it. And other organizations have come in to help too. And that's great. That aren't even churches, right? And they're still giving money or providing volunteers. And isn't that great that they're doing that? We shouldn't think that's not a good thing just because they're not one of us. In fact, I think we can do it. And one of our approaches here at Lakeshore is not to reinvent the wheel. If there's already a good program out there for something, we don't need to start another program here at Lakeshore or another whole ministry to do that here at Lakeshore. If there's already a good one out there, why don't we just partner with them? Wouldn't that be a better witness to the world, the unity that we could have in doing that? So we don't try to run every program. You know, people say, the church ought to be doing this or that. If there's already somebody out there doing it well, let's just support that. Let's send you over there to volunteer with them. Wouldn't that be good? You can tell them you're from Lakeshore. I don't mind that, but just go serve, right? Because if they're doing something that honors God, we can always and should always support that. Now, even if they're not one of us. There was a, a preacher who shortly after World War II was visiting an asylum for the criminally insane. Back in that day, we had asylums for the criminally insane. There's not much of that around anymore, but the, the, they were very common then. And they figured somebody who habitually committed violent crimes had some mental problems, and they would put them into these asylums for the criminally insane. And this preacher found out that he could go visit there, and uh, he wanted to go check it out, do a little ministry, uh, to see if he could help out there. And so when he went to, to visit it for the first time, he was just wanting to be shown around and told about the program. And, and there was a, a guard there that took him around and told him about the program. And, and he noticed there were like a little over 100 inmates there, but only three guards for 100 inmates. And when he got back to the office, he said, do you have any questions about our program here? He says, I've got, I've got one. I felt a little uncomfortable. There are over 100 inmates. Why would you only have three guards these are criminally violent people. Why would you only have three guards for over 100 inmates? He says, oh, we learned something a long time ago. He said, lunatics never unite. 
He said, we've noticed they never unite. They will never work with each other. They'll never cooperate with each other because they are so suspicious of each other all the time. They'll never unite. Lunatics don't unite, but wise people do. Wise people do. We can do a lot more together for the work of the kingdom than any of us churches could do individually or any of us Christians could do individually on our own. It's good to work together in harmony. Well, there's a third area of our attitude that Jesus points out in this passage too. Uh, Patient tolerance of unbelievers. Let's pick up verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, you got to look at the context here a little bit. Resolutely setting out for Jerusalem means he's determined to go to Jerusalem even though he knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He knows how the tide's going to turn. He knows it's going to lead to him eventually being arrested and crucified. He knows that. But he's still resolutely set out for Jerusalem. But Jesus did something that a lot of them would never do. When Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, uh, he decided to go through Samaria. That's not what the normal Jews did. There was such a, a division and conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans that, that most Jews, if they had to travel from one point to another to get to Jerusalem, if Samaria was in the middle, they would go out of their way to go around Samaria to get to Jerusalem. Even though it was harder, even though it took longer and it was more expensive, they just so despised the Samaritans that they wouldn't even walk through Samaria. And the Samaritans were perfectly fine with that, by the way. They didn't want you coming through Samaria anyway. That was kind of the way they felt about each other, okay? So he resolutely sets out for Jerusalem, verse 52, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. So most likely the people that went into town to line everything up, you know, a place to stay, food to eat, all of that, told them we're on our way to Jerusalem, we're just passing through. And when they heard that, They didn't like it at all. They didn't want them coming there and staying there. It says, but the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? (laughs) What a great attitude. (laughs) They don't like us, so let's call down fire from heaven and destroy them all. Do you know what James and John's nicknames were? Sons of Thunder. That was their nickname. Do you think maybe they had a little temper problem? Yeah, sometimes we think of these disciples and we don't think anything bad about them. We don't think they struggled with anything. That was their nickname, Sons of Thunder. They were probably pretty fiery personalities, weren't they? And their first thought is, I can't believe they're treating us that way. And so disrespectful to us and to Jesus. And it's not fair and it's not right. And we ought to just call out fire from heaven. We ought to just march into the capital and take over and destroy stuff. Because they don't agree with us. Right? Isn't that the attitude some people who claim to be Christ followers have been living with? It's sad. It's one of the saddest things to happen in our nation. And many of them did claim to be Christ followers who were in there doing that. And people lost their lives over it. Sad. It just made me sick to my stomach to watch what was going on. 
And I don't care where you are politically. That, that should make you sad too as a Christ follower. That people representing Jesus Christ would say that's how they ought to act. And that's the attitude they ought to have. And the approach that they ought to take. So well, they, they disrespect the Christianity. They don't support things we think they ought to support. And they're against things we think they ought to be for. Just like the people Jesus is talking about here in Samaria. They didn't welcome Jesus. They didn't welcome his disciples. They didn't support what they were doing. And James and John want to call down fire on them. Verse 55, Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then his disciples simply went to another village. They don't want us there. That's okay. We'll go somewhere else. We'll do something else. We don't have to call down fire on them. One of the biggest mistakes we make as Christ followers is we think that in order to represent Christ well, we have to demand our rights as Christ followers with such an attitude that it makes other people think we're just angry, bitter people. And that's not the mind of Christ. That's not the way of thinking or approaching life that Christ set for us. It's not his example that we're supposed to follow. It's not easy because we all get stirred up, right? You may be a son of thunder kind of personality too, right? Your first response is, call down fire from heaven. Let's destroy those people. But here's the thing. We can't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. They don't even have the ability or the capacity to do that. If you're going to go through your life expecting everybody else to have Christian values all the time and support your Christian values all the time, if that's the way you're going to go through life and you've got a son of thunder personality, you're going to be mad at people all the time. Because you're not going to find a world like that here on the earth. You're not. It doesn't exist, even in America. So we've got to stop expecting it to exist even here in America. I want to get really real here about the church and how I think we've gotten off track a lot in this country. Listen to me. We've tried to make this nation a Christian nation by political means. And Jesus never called us to do that. He called us to make this a Christian nation by making disciples of everybody in this nation. That's what he called us to do. You see, the more people we bring to Jesus, the more this nation will have Christian values and Christian atmosphere and support Christian ideas and teachings and causes. And instead of using our energies to go riot and attack, we should be using our energies to make disciples the way Jesus commanded us to to bring more people to love and follow Jesus. You don't accomplish that politically. It doesn't happen because of who's in power or not in power. You see, the early church grew and multiplied while serving under one of the most pagan governments in the history of the world. They did not have Christian leaders in their communities where they lived and their countries where they lived. They did not. 
but they brought people to Jesus and it changed the world. That's what we need to be doing. We need to focus our energies back on the mission that God gave us, not the political agenda of either party, but the mission of Christ. Because the more people we bring to Jesus, the more we transform the culture in a way that's pleasing to God. Here's what I noticed too. If you look at the big picture of history in the early church, Jesus said, don't worry about that. Let's not call down fire. We'll just go somewhere else. Here's the interesting thing. Not long after that, later after the death, burial, and resurrection, the church gets going. It says in Acts chapter 8 that Philip went to Samaria and preached the gospel there. You know what happened? He was received well. And people were brought to Jesus. What if they had called down fire on those people earlier on in the story? Do you think anybody would have been receptive to Christianity then? Absolutely not. You see, we're not called to call down fire on people. We're called to bring them to know Jesus, the one that we love and serve. Sometimes you've got to plant some seeds. You've got to just withhold your anger. You've got to be tactful and loving to lay that groundwork so that later on, maybe not even us, but somebody else has the opportunity to bring them to Jesus. And they don't have a sour taste in their mouth yet about what Christians are like because we didn't act that way around them. And now when somebody talks to them about Jesus, they're open to it and they listen and they respond. That leads to the last thing, and that is an attitude or mindset we need to have is a decisive allegiance to Christ. There's a story, and I want to just finish this really quickly here. Beginning with verse 57, there are three people that that Jesus invites to come and follow him, and they have different responses. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You know what he's telling the guy? Yeah, you want to come follow me because it looks like it's all fun and games. It looks like it's all wonderful. Probably heard about the miracles, heard about the great things Jesus had done. Man, I want to be part of that. I want to be on board with that. And Jesus said, well, think about it because if you come follow me right now, here's the situation. I don't own houses or land or have a position of power or prestige. You better think about the commitment that you're making here. My kingdom's not like a worldly kingdom. It's not. It's not even of this world. So you're not going to get the trappings of a worldly kingdom by following me. That's not what you do when you come to follow me. It's not about getting the trappings of a worldly kingdom. Now, there's something better than that that you get, but don't come into it thinking that's what it's all about. It's not. Then there's another one. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Doesn't that sound kind of uncaring from Jesus? I'll follow you, but first I want to go bury my father. The problem is in that culture, if his father had died, they buried them quickly. I mean, because they couldn't preserve the bodies very long, they got them into the grave quickly. This was not something where the father had just died. He hadn't. The father was not dead yet. You can read it within the context and the words that are used here. He's saying, well, you know, as long as my father's still alive, I need to be there, working there, serving there, helping him, being around him. But when he does eventually die, then I'll come follow you. 
Jesus says, uh, let the dead bury their own dead. I think he's using a little bit of a twist on words. The spiritually dead bury their own dead. But you need to do something that's better than that with your life. You don't need to live a spiritually dead life. You've got more important things you could be giving yourself to than that. Then Jesus, it says, uh, verse 61, still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I've, uh, I've never really worked with a plow, but I have worked on a tractor uh, plowing up some land. And the guy I worked for was telling me how to do it. He said, now, Randy, when you get on the tractor and you start to plow a row, you put your eyes on something straight ahead and you keep your eyes on it while you're plowing that row so that you can have a straight row. You just keep your eyes on the, the thing ahead. So I started out, it was out on some land that we were, we were clearing and landscaping and doing some work on, and I saw a tree at the other side of this field that I was plowing in, and I kept my eyes on that tree, and then I started thinking, I wonder if it really works. So I glanced back to see how straight I was going. And I could see a really good straight line, but the longer I looked, all of a sudden there was a crook in the line. And so I turned around again and saw, oh, I took my eyes off the point that I was supposed to be looking at. I'm looking at it. And, and, and then I started thinking, well, I wonder if it's happened more than once. And I turned around again. By <laughs> well, the time I got to the other side, I had a line like that. And then my boss was standing over on the side, just shaking his head like this. You know, I told you to keep your head. You see, it messes up all the other things that you're trying to do if you don't keep your eyes where you need to. The Bible says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You see, he had his eyes ahead. He resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He went there knowing he was going to the cross. He knew the price that was going to have to be paid, and he was willing to do it. And he never looked back. And he said, if you're going to fit into the kingdom of God, have the same mindset as Christ. Give yourselves, put your eyes on, and focus on what you need to be focused on in the kingdom work of Christ. It's not a worldly kind of kingdom. It's an upside-down kind of kingdom. And if you fix your eyes on Jesus and follow him, you will be a servant a willing servant of others. And you won't be wanting to call down fire on people very often. And if you do get the urge, you'll know it's not the right thing to do. You'll decide it's better for me to keep my eyes on Jesus and follow him into the service that he's called us to. Maybe you're here today and you're ready to take a step like that and giving yourself to following Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. I want you to think about that and pray about that. Let's pray together right now. Father, we thank you that in Christ, in Christ we are added to and belong to a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom that's not like this world. And if you want to think about position in this kingdom, Father, help us to understand in this kingdom the highest position we can have is that of a servant to others, even to others that can do nothing for us. Advance us in any way. Reward us in any way. The reward is in becoming more and more like you, Jesus. Help us to continue to grow and mature 
in our mindset and our attitudes. May our way of thinking become more and more like your way of thinking, Jesus, so that we could be faithful servants in the work of your kingdom until you come back to get us. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.